2: Hello and welcome to Q&A, I'm Jane Ordlinger, and this episode is brought to you by Bambi. Not like the deer, but B-A-M-B-E-E. They help small businesses with the HR side of things, human resources. I'll have more to say about Bambi later in the show. Our guest today is Marvin Kalb, the veteran journalist. He was a reporter and commentator for CBS and NBC alike. I don't think he spent any time with ABC, but I'll ask. He was the host of Meet the Press. He was the founding director of the Shorenstein Center at Harvard's Kennedy School. For many years now, he has hosted the Calb Report with the National Press Club. Marvin Kalb has authored many books, including novels. His very first book was on his experiences in Russia, published in 1958. That was Eastern Exposure. His latest book, too, is on his experiences in Russia and back home in New York, frankly. The new book is called Assignment Russia, Becoming a Foreign Correspondent in the Crucible of the Cold War. And Marvin Kalb joins us today from, uh, are you in Washington, D.C., in environs, Marvin?
1: Well, let's say in the environs, I'm in Chevy Chase, Maryland, which is kind of just across the line.
2: Do you still feel like a New Yorker or, or are you now a Washingtonian through and through?
1: Well, really not either. I have spent so much time on the road, as you can imagine, Jay, being a reporter for decades, you find yourself covering wars and national elections in one country or another. and If you have a particular um, interest in the old Russia then the Soviet Union and the new Russia, Um, you find yourself traveling there as well and then in the middle of it all was the Vietnam War uh, which absorbs so much of the national attention and therefore a reporter's attention so I did a great deal of traveling not a New Yorker not a Washingtonian but someone up there in the world of journalism whatever that means yeah
2: well starting at the beginning if you don't mind um What borough were you born in, or what borough did you grow up in?
1: Well, I was born in the Bronx and grew up in Manhattan.
2: And what did your dad do?
1: My father was a tailor.
2: Uh Uh-huh. And um, do you have memories of the Depression, or did you just hear about it?
1: Oh, I have very distinct memories of the Depression. I was born in 1930. That means I'm approaching my, my 91st birthday now. And I remember during the depression, the worst days of the depression, there was one story especially that I don't take pleasure in telling you about, but it is a story that gives you some sense of what kids went through in the depression. What I would do quite often since we had absolutely no money is I would get up terribly early in the morning at four or five and then go through neighborhood garbage pails, looking for discarded milk bottles. Milk bottles in those days, if they were whole, would, if you brought them to a grocery shop, would give you a penny. So if you had five, you had a nickel. And if you had a nickel, you had enough money for your father, my father, who worked in downtown Manhattan in the Garmin Center. Uh, You needed a nickel to get on the subway to get down there to look for a job. And it was only many, many, many years later, Jay, that I found in the back corner of my mind the thought that let's say my father who was a very energetic man and worked terribly hard, uh, let's say he couldn't find a job downtown. How, I asked myself belatedly, would he have got home? Mm -hmm. Because he didn't have any money, neither did we. But that was the deep depression, and it affected, I think, many, many, many of us. It must have been a, I'm
2: guessing it was a pleasure to go to CCNY and the whole world of college. My guess is you just ate it up.
1: Oh, I very much ate it up, and you have to remember that For most kids uh, my age in the Depression, you went to work, and you went to work primarily to get some money for your family. Now one of the things that burned intensely within my father and mother was the desire that their children get an education. And they would work triply hard to make that possible, and they did. And my brother and I, my brother Bernie, also a journalist, approaching, by the way, his 100th birthday. Mm. Quite remarkable. <laughs> um, two brothers, both journalists in their 90s. It, it, it amazes me every day. Hmm. Um, but uh, the key thing was that, that what we had to do was get an education because in my parents' mind, that opened the door for you to for economic opportunity, for social acceptance, you had to have an education. And going to City College was very special because you, in those days, you didn't have to pay a penny. If you passed certain tests, <clears throat> certain tests you were able to gain admission to City College and you could get a fabulous education there City was regarded in those days as the poor man's Harvard. And in many ways, it was, I was incredibly grateful for the education that I was able to get there.
2: Uh, did you study Russian in college or did that not come until graduate school?
1: Well, I, I, did, I did attempt to study the language as a senior at City College, but my teacher was a disaster. Um, He was a young man from England who spoke English with a very pronounced British accent, which he boasted about, clearly. But his knowledge of Russian, I learned later, and sort of assumed then, was very minimal. And I think he got to teach Russian because City College wanted somebody uh, to teach Russian, and they simply didn't have anyone at the time. And this guy was awful. But I picked up little bits and pieces of the language. And it excited me. In fact, Jay, to try to learn more. And I did when I then went on to graduate school.
2: Now, did you? what did you major in at CCNY?
1: Well, it depended on the year. I mean, I started as um, pre-med mm. to satisfy my mother. Of course. I,
2: <laughs> mm. I then
1: went on to um, pre-law to satisfy my father. And I then sort of dabbled around in philosophy English until my brother asked me a very simple question. What do you expect to do when you are finished with City College? Hmm, I thought for a moment, what would I be doing really? And like many, many kids in college, I simply did not know I was still floundering about But Bernie knew about my interest in history, knew about my interest in current events, and because he himself was already a journalist working for the New York Times, he knew that I would look toward journalism as a possible craft. But I truly was interested in European history and Russian history especially because of what happened during World War II. The U.S. and Russia were allies during World War II. And I would keep a map in my bedroom um, with little pins that I would put into it denoting where the Nazi armies were in the Soviet Union and then where the Russian Red Army pushed the Germans back. And I would play around with that, and it absorbed me. Um, I would, i mean, no military expert whatsoever—but it the the military battles absorbed then my interest in where it was taking place, and that was Russia. And I had always been somewhat of a reader of Russian literature and European literature, so I was fascinated by it.
2: Before I leave the subject of languages altogether, it occurs to me to ask. Did your parents speak a foreign language or your grandparents? Had they come from someplace else?
1: Oh, well, my grandparents never made it to the United States. They were killed by the Germans. Mm -hmm. But um, my parents obviously did. My mother came to the United States from Kiev in Ukraine Mm -hmm. in 1913. And my father came in June 1914, just before the outbreak of World War I. And they met um, in the US, they did not know each other from, from their European, East European roots. And really those roots, while geographically close, were somehow or another quite separate. My mother came from a family in Kiev that apparently you would describe as middle class because my mother had a tutor. Um, She was taught French, she was taught German, Um, and at home she would hear Yiddish and and Ukrainian. So she was picking up languages. My father came from a very small textile town in Poland called Gerardów. Um, And in that town, Most of the population was Jewish. And in that environment, the mother did the hard work and the father went to the synagogue to study. And that was the sociological breakdown. The father was always liberated because he was a man uh, to study, whereas the woman was put into a position really against her will in many cases of being the one to work, in addition to raising the family. The woman's job was always much tougher. The man studied, and that was the environment out of which my father emerged. But in 1914, with the outbreak of war just around the corner, my father's mother considered it wise to get him out of the country because otherwise he would have been picked up, put in the czarist army, and probably been among the first to be knocked off Mm -hmm. when the war actually started. And so she sent him to England, then to the United States. I haven't a clue as to where they got the money, Mm -hmm. Um, but my father did end up as part of what was called the Galveston experiment where East Europeans ended up in Galveston, Texas, and from there went up the middle of America, branching off to the left and right, ending up in small towns where they might have needed, and obviously did, tailors, people who dealt with cloth and the production of shirts and dresses, skirts. Um, Those were the tailors and my Father was among those.
2: Well, Marvin Kalb, let's talk a little Harvard. <clears throat> and I wanna know who your who your most important professors were or one or two had particular meaning to you.
1: Well, at, at Harvard, there was no question that the number one person was Michael Karpovich. He taught Russian history Uh, He had come to the United States, I believe, in 1922. Um, He had studied Russian history at home before he left Russia. But with the onset of World War I, then the Russian Revolution, uh, Karpovich felt that he had no place in a Russia that was being overwhelmed by by a dictator named named Lenin in those days. Uh, So he came to the US got a job at Harvard, rose through the ranks, became a full professor. And when I got there in 1951, I, he was one of the first people I went to see. He was very warm, very friendly. And we became not only student professor, but also reasonably good friends. After a while, he asked me to substitute and be his um, sort of junior colleague, and when he was not well or went on holiday, I substitute for I substituted for Karpovich in the teaching of Russian history, and I enjoyed it immensely. He was he was the number one guy.
2: no purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.
1: The number two guy was a much younger man, hmm. just a little older than I. I, I bet it, I know what's coming. Well, Richard <laughs> Pipes is the name of the guy. Oh, I was, I was thinking
2: of, I didn't know you were going to say Pipes. I thought you might say Henry the K, but no, I'm, no. I'm, I'm a little too Henry, far no, ahead. No, no.
1: Henry Kissinger was in a different world. He was in the government department He was a treasured uh, graduate student over there who acted as if he was already a senior professor. Um, He had his own world and Henry Kissinger always was a very special guy. But in terms of the professors who had an impact on me at the time, Richard Pipes is rather young, Polish, uh, Jewish, Emigre to the US, a terrific teacher. Um, I really liked him very, very much. We were friends till the day he died a year or two ago. And Pipes had a different vision of Russia from the vision that Karpovich had. Pipes looked upon communism as the determining feature of what was happening in Russia, whereas Karpovich looked upon nationalism as a factor in Russian history. And so I got both sides and that that was terrific. It was incredibly helpful when I went there both as a very, very junior diplomat in 1956 and then in 1959 as a CBS reporter and that I stayed on then as a reporter for the rest of my life.
2: Well, I wanna uh, uh, say to the audience a couple of things before we go to our break. Uh, Marvin Kalb would go on to write an early biography of Kissinger, I think, is that right, Marvin?
1: Yes, I think it was the first that came out in 1974. And it was a product that my brother and I worked on together. And we were struggling for a title and ended up in desperation, calling it Kissinger. <laughs> Why not? Why not? And, and Richard
2: Pipes, that extraordinary man, uh, uh, he was actually a man who at the age of 16 laid eyes on Hitler uh, from an upper floor of his parents' home. Uh, Hitler had come to take a kind of victory lap around Warsaw. And Pipes saw him, Pipes saw him pass in, in, in a vehicle. And uh, Pipes said many, many years later, In his memoirs, he said he had never discussed the Holocaust, certainly in a personal way. And uh, he became a Sovietologist, as we used to call them, to have a way to deal with political evil, as I think he put it. He didn't want to look at the Germans a little personal. Let's look at the Soviets. I found that very touching when he wrote his memoirs in, I think, his, his, his 70s. Anyway, a lot more to discuss. I'm Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A with Marvin Kalb, who is the author most recently of Assignment Russia. Back after this word from our sponsor. When you're running a business, HR issues can kill you. Wrongful termination suits, minimum wage requirements, labor regulations, and HR manager salaries aren't cheap, an average of $75,000 a year. Bambi spelled B-A-M-B-E-E, was created specifically for small business. You can get a dedicated HR manager, craft HR policy, and maintain your compliance all for just $99 a month. With Bambi, you can change HR from your biggest liability to your biggest strength. Your dedicated HR manager is available by phone, email, or real-time chat. From onboarding to terminations, they customize your policies to fit your business and help you manage your employees day-to-day, all for just $99 a month. Month to month, no hidden fees, cancel anytime. You didn't start your business because you wanted to spend time on HR compliance. Let Bambi help. Get your free HR audit today. Go to Bambi.com slash QA right now to schedule your free HR audit. That's Bambi.com slash QA. Spell BAM to the B-E-E dot com slash QA. Welcome back, everyone, to Q&A. I'm Jay Nordlinger, speaking with Marvin Kalb, veteran journalist who has just written a new memoir, Assignment Russia, Becoming a Foreign Correspondent, in the crucible of the Cold War. So you're a Harvard doctoral student, I think, and the State Department comes calling. Do I have that right?
1: You do. It was December 1956. And I got a call from Marshall um, Shulman, who was the deputy director of the Russian Research Center. And Marshall said that he had just, and Marshall had been in the State Department as a speechwriter for Dean Acheson. And he had got a call from a friend of his that the embassy in Moscow needed somebody immediately who spoke Russian, who was single, who had a top secret clearance and could leave in a week. And he said, how about you? And I had just come out of the army where I had the clearance, I was not married. Um, I was incredibly eager to go And he had provided me with the opportunity. I accepted and a couple of weeks later arrived in Russia.
2: And your experiences (laughs) in Russia were related in that first book, Eastern Exposure. Uh, Did did you resume your studies before journalism? Or did you never resume your doctoral
1: studies after the
2: State Department?
1: No, no. What happened, Jay, was that. When I was able to finish um, my assignment in Russia, which ended in January, 1957, I had a choice. Um, Excuse me, I have a frog in my throat. I had a choice of staying in the State Department and becoming an officer, in other words, a literal diplomat, or I could leave. And I decided to leave because the idea of being a diplomat was too constraining uh, in my vision. It was not for me. I enjoyed the experience very much, but it was not for me as a long-term proposition. And so I left and immediately returned to Harvard, continued my work on a PhD, was at that point where I had finished my uh, general exams, I had finished the orals, I was well on my way to completing my dissertation, that was about three, four months away. When, during this period of time, I was writing articles for the Times, for the Saturday Review, for Gentleman's Quarterly, all about Russia. That was the subject that was very much on my mind. As it was in the minds of an awful lot of people, we were in the middle of the Cold War. It was an incredibly dangerous, momentous, Time in East West relations. And I wrote a piece about Soviet youth for the New York Times Magazine. Uh, that, of course, comes out on a Sunday. And Edward R. Murrow, the great Murrow of CBS, uh, read it, liked it, and in the morning, Monday, called me. I was at the Library uh, doing my work. and. Very nice woman, a librarian, came over to me and tapped me on the shoulder and said, Marvin, there's a man on the phone that'd like to talk to you. I said, Who is it? And well, she said, he says he's Edward R. Murrow. Oh, I said, forget it. Murrow is clearly not calling me. I mean, he's probably a quack. Just hang up on him. Now I don't know if she actually hung up on him, but I kept right on working. I it dropped out of my mind until late that afternoon she came back and said martin it's that same man again he says he said why don't you talk to him and i said to myself that you know silly he's not calling me but what the hell picked up the phone and jay the minute i heard his voice (laughs) i realized what a total jackass i was and apologized profusely he brushed aside. Not important, he said. He always used to call me Professor. I called him Sir. That was the nature of our relationship. And um, he said, Professor, don't think twice about it. Be in my office tomorrow at 9 o'clock. Can you do it? I said, where? He said, in New York. Oh, I said, I'll be there. Got on a late train, was there well before 9 o'clock. His secretary said, you've got a half hour. No more, Mr. Murrow's very busy. I said, it's more than enough for me. Walked in, we talked for three hours. Um, Merle was intensely interested in everything about the Soviet Union, everything about Soviet youth, uh, what they did, what was their sex life, what was their family life, when would they marry, uh, what did they think of when they thought of communism, did they like it, did they hate it, what was their sense? He asked me everything, and I tried to answer as best I could. And at 12 o'clock, the secretary again came in, and she said, Ed, you've got a lunch. He said, oops, sorry. Picked himself up, put his arm around my shoulder, and said, how would you like to join CBS News? Took me about two seconds to say, yes, sir. I'd be delighted. And that began a 24-year stay at CBS, why it's an interesting question, why I immediately said yes, tomorrow, Uh, my mother had urged me, made me promise not to take any job, not to be distracted in any way, finish your PhD, get the doctorate, then you can do just about anything you want. Um, But somehow or another, his influence on me, his his being there for three hours with him um, I don't want to say overwhelmed me, but certainly did persuade me instantly that I wanted to work with him at CBS.
2: Marvin, I wanted to ask you, it's on my list, what was the magic or magnetism of Murrow? Uh, Why did people so venerate him? Uh, Was it um, his persona, his mind. Uh, uh, he, he must have been an, an extraordinary figure. And, and I wonder if you can point to certain qualities.
1: Sure. Um, first of all, if you were somebody who did not know him, but only listened to him, or in those days, television wasn't as dominant a force, would occasionally see him. He had a remarkable voice, that's to begin with. That's God-given. You don't develop that. That's it. He also was an incredibly handsome man. So on television, he came through voice and appearance as somebody attractive, appealing. Mm -hmm. Then what was it that he was saying? He was always... It's terrific, telling jokes, by the way, at a bar. Fabulous. But when he was on air, it was serious. Now, there are two points to be made here. One is Murrow was a complete pro. When he was on air in front of that microphone, when he knew what the story was to convey the danger of the bombardment of London during World War II, he took a microphone and put it on the steps leading down into a um, place where people hid from bombing attacks. And you would hear footsteps. You heard footsteps rushing down the steps. And Murray would, would just say to you, because that's what you were hearing, those are the steps of Londoners rushing away from German bombs. In other words, he had a way of using the technology to enrich the story that he was telling. That was one aspect. He was a complete professional. The other aspect, which was the one that powerfully affected me was Murrow was a man who understood during World War II the power of both totalitarianism to completely dominate your life and the power of an individual to control your life, the power of a dictator. And he was so negatively impressed by what Hitler could do in Germany and in starting World War II and bringing the horrors that he brought to so many people in so many different nations Murrow felt this cannot happen in America. We must be on the lookout always for someone who could use the media to control the message, to dominate the political.
0: That's chumbacasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Political environment. And then to take over and impose a dictatorship. And he didn't want that in America.
2: Marvin, before we leave the subject of Murrow, I want to bring up something controversial. Um, obviously, lives are long, or we hope, we hope they're long and complicated. <laughs> um, not everyone is an angel. Um my brother conservatives have always held it against murrow that he advised adlai stevenson quietly or so one hears i wonder whether you know is this true first of all and and does it matter
1: number 1 i don't know if it's true mm. i simply don't know does it matter maybe in some way it does but i don't think it mattered with murrow because what he said on air was what he was absolutely convinced was true.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Now, he might've been wrong on occasion. I'm sure we're all wrong on occasion. Yeah. But basically the thrust of his reporting was to be as close to the truth as he could possibly get. And when he was dealing with Senator McCarthy, for example, and when he did his very famous broadcast on March 9th, 1954, taking on Senator McCarthy, There was no question about it, there was an editorial tilt in the broadcast against McCarthy, but it was based on what McCarthy said himself. In other words, Murrow did cut the tape in such a way to leave you with certain impressions, but the impressions were overwhelmingly backed by fact. And that was what Murrow attempted to do. I, I, you know, this, Jay, we get into this very often when we teach journalism, what is objectivity? Uh, Can people in America today believe everything that they hear on radio or see in a newspaper? Let us bear in mind that we are in, in my opinion, anyway, in a new stage in American journalism today where journalists are not, as I think Murrow was, above the fray, looking down, trying their best to analyze what was going on on the playing field. Now, many journalists are part of the political warfare. There is a body of American journalism sort of embodied by Fox News, but not just Fox News, but that represents a very conservative point of view politically. And they're proud of it. When I started in journalism, nobody would be proud of either a right or a left point of view. That was not what we were there to do. And today there are other people on the far left, and they are looking at it from their perspective. And the people in the middle are being crushed, and I am terrified as to what happens in a quote, free society when journalism no longer has the responsibility of telling people what a fact is. When facts themselves are in dispute, truth is in dispute. And if you're in dispute about truth, you're in dispute in a democratic society of what binds us together.
2: Marvin, in your career, uh, you have done reporting, Mm -hmm. foreign correspondence, and so on, and commentary, opinion. Mm -hmm. Uh, How does one properly construct a wall between these things? Is is it like wearing one hat and then taking it off and putting on another and and remembering which hat you're wearing?
1: I don't think it's very difficult to know which hat you're wearing. I remember at CBS um, in the 1960s and 70s, Dan Rather and I used to alternate on a program called First Line Report on radio. It was a three minute, 50 second analysis. CBS did not call it commentary, they called it analysis. And what the difference was, was commentary, you were were stating your position, your editorial position. Analysis is to analyze from a detached perspective different points of view. Back them up, attack them, uh, support them, crush them, whatever, but always from an analytical point of view, you are separate from the event. Commentary, you're in it. And what I'm saying today is that the walls between fact, analysis, and commentary are crumbling. And that is very dangerous in a democracy.
2: I want to ask you about two people very important to you, uh, your wife and your brother. Oh, yes. And I want to start with Bernie. Um, I find, and I've been reading your book, um, I find your relationship very touching, because you never know how siblings are going to get along. Uh, you, you never know. Sometimes a mother lucks out and her children love each other. Uh, uh, sometimes it's, it's not so lucky. And I wonder, I'm sure some rivalry must have crept in. I don't see how it how it could be otherwise. You're in the same business, sometimes at least with the same employer. But there's such love between two. You, you speak about Bernie in this book, for example, with such warmth. I must say, if your mother could hear it, she just burst.
1: <laughs> I think my mother would love it, but would not find it surprising. Um, we were raised in a household where... Um, in a depression household, you began to realize very quickly what was important. If you have, Jay, no money, I wanna emphasize those words, no money, and you have to eat and you have to live somewhere, the question becomes, how do you get it? I can go rob a bank, but that was not our way. So you had to get it in a different way. My father worked incredibly hard. And my brother did and my sister did. My wonderful, wonderful sister, Estelle. Um, We all worked terribly hard.
2: Did you you say Estelle, Marvin? Estelle
1: is her name.
2: I didn't know about Estelle. I'm glad to know about her. I didn't mean to leave her out. I wouldn't have left her out. No, no, no. Beg your pardon.
1: She was was very much the kingpin. She was the oldest of the three of us. Oh, my gosh. Yes, and she very much kept body and soul together when my mother and father went out to try to uh, earn a living, uh, well, run a very be- small cleaning store, etc. But we were talking about Bernie a moment yeah. ago. He and I, there are eight years between us, but he has always been, for me, my older brother. And he would set the way, and I respected him. And he worked also very hard. And when he went off into the Army in World War II, I went off to the Pacific. Um, It was a responsibility to help my mother and father in any way that I could, serving as my brother's backstop and my sister's backstop. And so um, we were raised to be together and we have always been uh, together. And you talk about competition between us, I suppose there was, but, but nothing that would ever breed um, any form of jealousy or anything like that. I will do whatever I can to advance my brother's professional interests, or um, as far as personal is concerned, uh, he visited me a couple of days ago, and it is remarkable to me that a man who is 99 years of age, is still in there talking to me about what's going on in the Middle East. Uh, can Hamas do this? Can the Israelis do that? Um, and I was saying to myself, listening to him filled with admiration, by the way, his words were clear. Mind is clear. Um, he's burning.
2: Mm-hmm. Marvin, you, it may interest you to know that, that now, it's now 1140 in the morning. This afternoon, I'm going to Grand Central Terminal to meet a friend who's coming for a visit, and we'll probably meet at the clock. This is not as momentous as your meeting at the clock in Grand Central. July 1st, 1958,
1: was it? 57.
2: You had this blind date. Yes. It's like from a movie.
1: Well, um, did
2: did you, were you, were you thinking of proposing within the first five minutes?
1: <laughs> no, probably took 10. But uh, I can tell you that uh, this was a blind date arranged by a friend, uh, the, the mother of a friend of my brother's. And because um, I was interested in Russia I had just come back, um, was going on for my PhD in Russian history. This was um I was sort of associated with the study of Russia in a very limited sphere. And this young lady who I knew only by name, Madeline Green, um, had just finished Wellesley and she was going on to get a PhD in Russian studies, those days called Soviet studies at Columbia. And um, so this mother thought it would be a good idea for the two of us to get together and the way it was done in those days was the younger woman by six years uh, turning to this older but unattached guy and saying, would you help this young lady? Because you know about Russia and she's just started. And so we met under the clock at Grand Central, um, went for an ice cream, um, rode on a double-decker bus down Fifth Avenue went to Greenwich Village, walked around the village, had another ice cream, and then the thought occurred to me that, whoops, this is serious. This is quite a marvelous woman. And she most certainly, after 62 years of marriage,
2: proven that. Well, Marvin, from the sublime to the ridiculous, or maybe to the dangerous, Vladimir Putin. I have um, spoken with many, many Russia experts about Putin over the last 20 years especially mm-hmm. over the last 10 or so and one of my most common questions is what is he is he a neo-soviet a Soviet romantic former KGB colonel is he a nationalist is he an autocrat is he a would-be Czar a little Stalin what what give me a Give me a snapshot, Uh, give me a a little brief about Vladimir Putin.
1: Well, you have already described him with all of those various possibilities, but let me fasten on to one, Hmm. because to me that is the central issue. Putin is a nationalist leader knowing full well that the nation he leads is in trouble. It is in trouble economically, not militarily, but economically. And it is in trouble because, in a way, it has lost its soul. The Russian people have to believe in something. They are instinctively a very religious people. They're of the Orthodox faith. They believe in that faith. It is very much part of their lives. So Putin walks around with a cross. He says only nice things about the church leadership. He associates with them because they represent what is most essential about Russia whether led by a czar or a commissar. And that is that they are Russian, they are Orthodox, they are nationalistic. The person I was writing about for my dissertation, Sergei Semyonovich Uvarov, was a mid 19th century nationalist figure who came up with the phraseology about autocracy, nationalism, and and orthodoxy. He came up with the formula that Putin lives by today. And he is, Putin is tough, determined, but working a losing card, and he knows it. And that's why he is trying to solidify now whatever he can around him to protect his position because he associates himself with the future of Russia and the ability of Russia to be sustainable in a hostile environment. He always imagines the world around Russia to be in a hostile coalition to take advantage of us. He's always thinking in those lines. And he comes out of a KGV background where suspicion and conspiracy are simply second nature to the man. He, He lives by conspiracy and he's very smart and he plays angles and he is vicious. And now he is cracking down on all potential political elements in Russia in order once again from a weakened position to strengthen
0: That's ChumbaCasino.com.
1: No purchase necessary. BDW. Void prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Four. Um, I don't think he will succeed, uh, but it may take a bit of time.
2: Well, Marvin, thank you. Uh, uh, I want to go back to a previous leader in the Kremlin, namely Khrushchev, who gave you a nickname. Yes. Could, <laughs> uh, tell our audience about that.
1: Well, it was interesting. With the July 4th uh, National American Holiday celebrated in the ambassador's residence in Moscow, a place called Spaso House, and Khrushchev and the entire Politburo arrived, and that in and of itself was an indication to Ambassador Charles Bolin that the Russians, particularly Khrushchev, wanted somehow to break out of the Stalinist mode and introduce reform into their lives and into the US-Russian relationship. And there were only four of us at the embassy in those years, not now, in those years who spoke Russian. That was the ambassador, his two top deputies, and me. And I was really the kid on the block. Um, I was kind of a press officer, but I was essentially an interpreter or translator. I did whatever the ambassador wanted. That day he wanted me to look after Marshal Zhukov, the defense minister, the great, one of the great military heroes of World War II. I had been a PFC in the US Army, and I thought the cemetery was too wacko out of line for a PFC to be looking after a Soviet Marshal, but that's the way it was. And I went around with uh, Zhukov, asked him all kinds of questions. He loved to talk about his role in World War II, he was also a heavy drinker. He sat back eight, I counted them, eight vodkas in a half hour. At which point, Khrushchev called us all up to him. And Marshal Yukov was tipsy as he approached Khrushchev and blurted out, I have finally found a young American who can drink like a Russian. And I was drinking water but he couldn't tell the difference. Um, Khrushchev was about five, six, I'm six, three. He looked up at me and he said, how tall are you? I said, I am, and believe me, I don't know where this phrase entered my mind then and I still can't figure it out. I said, I am three centimeters shorter than Peter the Great. Khrushchev burst into laughter. When a dictator laughed, all people around, everyone was laughing about uh, this young American diplomat being labeled Peter the Great. Every time after that, and when I came back for CBS in Moscow, Christian would see me, he would always refer to me as Peter the Great. And that is what happened even in the May 1960 summit in Paris, I was still in his mind Peter the Great, and it really got me a couple of very good interviews with
2: him. <laughs> Marvin, um, I've been thinking about journalism, reading your book. I think about journalism every day, anyway, because I do it. And reading your book, I thought of the impact uh, of the internet on our work. And you said you carried in your briefcase. I think you 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 had clippings. You know that I guess essential ones that you'd carry around because we needed something to refer to, and I myself carried around with me in a backpack. I can see it in in a legal folder, one of those red accordion-style folders. I always had clipping after clipping. That that was our our lifeblood, and the internet, for all its problems and perils and pitfalls, it's a lot of p words. (laughs) <laughs> My gosh, is it convenient. My gosh. And I just wonder, think of all the work that could have been done with the internet, but all the work that got done and good and accurate work too. Not all that was accurate. Not all that's accurate now, heaven knows. But man, has the internet made a difference. And I, um, I wonder, you know, we all thought that microfiche was cool, you know, Yeah. we hadn't seen anything yet.
1: No, no, that's quite right. And there's no doubt about the revolutionary impact that the internet has had upon journalism and on our lives. All the way around, whatever we do, you go to the back, it's all done through the internet now. And if the internet goes down, so does our system. And so it's magnificent, but puts us in a very vulnerable position. Uh, It has to be protected. And we are not doing a terribly good job the Russians are doing a better job of protecting the technology than we may be, although we're not talking about it as much as they are, and they're not talking about it terribly much either. So we are dealing with a tremendous asset, phenomenal, no question about a revolutionary, but at the same time, in my judgment, dangerous because it disconnects the human from an event. It imposes a kind of technological middleman between the human mind and facts and events and perceptions of truth. And I worry about that a great deal. Um, I am concerned about the use of the internet by dictators because if we marvel at the power of the internet to open our minds to all kinds of things the dictator has the same power to close the minds of those people under his sway so yes it's great and yes it does wonderful things for journalism as well as anything else but but hang on because the ride of the internet is not yet over
2: Ladies and gentlemen, I am Jay Nordlinger doing Q&A. The producer is Madeline Osborne. The sponsor of this episode is Bambi, B-A-M-B-E-E. Our guest is Marvin Kalb, author most recently of Assignment Russia, Becoming a Foreign Correspondent in the Crucible of the Cold War. Marvin, you say in your book, in your introduction, Something about the importance of journalism, good journalism, honest journalism, uh, to a democracy, to the health of a democracy. And I would hear this when I was growing up and I'd think, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> you know, it sounded so platitudinous. Uh, I don't think that anymore. I don't think that anymore at all.
1: Well, you really can't. It's, it's, it's damn important. Are, yeah, exactly. We are so much, Jay. We journalists, anyway, are so much part of of the essence of democracy. I remember many years ago asking Morrow if he could give me a definition of freedom. (laughs) And he thought for only a moment and said, think about two things in a society. Think about a structure called law and understanding that there is a high bar that must be reached by everybody to have a sustainable democracy. And that is the law. And he said on the other side, um, supporting the law is a free press. And if a free press gets shut down to any degree at all, the building of freedom on which these two pillars stand begins to wobble and can ultimately collapse. And I believe that to this day, and I'm proud to repeat Murrow's warning that in any democracy, two things must be maintained. One of them is a system of law. You don't make up the law. You don't interpret it by yourself. There are systems put into play and the systems have to work, and the legal system is essential to a democracy. The other is a free press. If there is not anyone to tell the people, quote unquote, what's going on, how will the people know what to do? In the old days in the Bible, they speak of a scribe um, as writing down and being the person then to go up on a hillside and blare out the the message the the truth as it was interpreted in those days and to this very day the journalist is the scribe of modern society if the scribe tells an untrue story the people are misled and then could leave the path of democracy and slowly be absorbed in an authoritarian system of government and that to me is the essential role of the press which I learned from my dear brother and from Edward Almer. I'm
2: Jay Nordlinger. He's Marvin Kalb. author of Assignment Russia. Thank you, everyone. Until next time.